Welcome to another week of Behind the Lens. Uh, I almost had a new co-host today. Jordan was still setting up cameras. Almost was going to make him sit down to co-host the show. But he's safely ensconced back there with with our beloved sound engineer, Brian. Um, So you've got me today. I am Debbie Lynn Elias, movie shark de Bloor, uh, film critic, host and creator of Behind the Lens. Uh, For those of you that aren't familiar with the show, we go behind the lens and below the line with uh, filmmakers, producers, directors, writers, cinematographers, costumers, actors, uh, you name it today. And speaking of you name it today, we're actually going to have um, the legendary operatic soprano Sumi Jo join us live at 1115. Um, She is... uh, prominent in the new film Youth, starring Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel, Jane Fonda, and Rachel Weisz, uh, with a beautiful, beautiful aria that she sings uh, at the end of the film. So Sumi Jo will be joining us. Uh, that is a real treat. We will also have writer, director, producer, editor, and I don't think I'm leaving anything out, Rick Alverson at the halfway mark uh, to talk about his latest film, Entertainment. Uh Rick is actually a master of cynicism uh, and irony, and it really comes through in this uh, film. So we'll talk more about it with him. And then we also will hear some excerpts from my exclusive interview with Hunger Games uh, franchise producer Nina Jacobson. We're at the end of the road, people. Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 2 opens on Friday, and... That's all she wrote, unless Suzanne Collins writes some more. Uh, we are done with the, with the story of Katniss, Peta, Gail, President Snow, and everybody else. And it's been a, it's been a great journey. Uh, I was lucky enough to be along on the journey covering the film and talking with Nina at every step of the way with all of the films, with Hunger Games, with Catching Fire, with the first uh, part one of Mockingjay, and now with part two. So let's let's turn to Nina Jacobson and Mocking Jay as we count it down. As you all may know, the premier, the Los Angeles premiere is tonight in Los Angeles. However, in light of the attack on Paris, Lionsgate, uh, to in deference to the circumstance in the world today, uh, has done away with the press red carpet, and uh, there will be a premiere, but it it will be no press. Will be no press line. Um, but the film will premiere uh, in Hollywood uh, at L.A. Live and open in theaters everywhere on Friday the 20th. But something that Nina has been very cognizant of since the very beginning was the total bandwidth of The Hunger Games and the visuals, the emotional beats, and the direction of how Katniss should be portrayed. So that was one of the first things that we talked about when we sat down uh, about a week ago to talk about this final chapter. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> it's really it. cool. I mean, it is the. I mean, it has been my bit. It's been my ambition um, because I love these books so much. 
not to screw them up. Yeah. She well, wrote something because she, she did it. Suzanne pulled that off, and it was really hard. Mm-hmm. What did she? I mean, if she if she threaded the needle. Mm-hmm. Threaded the needle. Threaded yes. The needle. Yes. Threaded the needle. And um, I always knew it would be much harder once you got to the dimensionality of film. Mm-hmm. What she'd done was already really hard, but then when you start to visualize it, very easy mm-hmm. to. Step over the line. And not just visualize it, but you really made, with your team, you made the worlds immersive. And you made the audience feel inclusive. We weren't a spectator. And I think that's particularly true with this one. Because this one, I noticed a distinct visual shift, almost a chapterization from Katniss's viewpoint that we haven't seen before. We've seen her motivated by love, motivated by vengeance, manipulated. But now we actually see, you know, the camera shot here, the camera shot here. And the vision, and Joe's lighting is reflective of that. How long did it take and how much preparation have you, have you done with Francis, with Joe, to establish and get that design right so that you do have that bandwidth that follows through with the story and the character growth? Well, I really give the credit on that to, to Francis and, and Yo. I think that, you know, the, from the beginning, Francis has had a great love and appreciation of these books mm-hmm. um, but also a very strong point of view about what he wanted us to see and not to see mm-hmm. and I think that that's very much in evidence in this movie there mm-hmm. are many there's as many great choices of what he wants to show you as what he mm-hmm. chooses not to show you and he is in like he's just such a confident filmmaker and you know as a producer I honestly I feel like you know, your job is to put people in a position to do their best work. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we are partners and we are in it together, but I trust him to kind of set the stage in that way mm-hmm. because um, he could do it far better than I ever could. Mm-hmm. And visually, he just has been pitch perfect. From the start. Mm -hmm. From the start. I think what I find that I love about this installment is also just seeing, like you were talking about, but I love seeing Katniss sort of writing her own script as a character because every other movie she's reacting Mm -hmm. to the script that's been written for her. It's the first time that she has to take control of the narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think that the way visually that they support that is really yeah. riveting. I mean, but the sense of scale and scope and grandeur, and yet you're still very much rooted in, I don't know, I guess what you would call it, the cost of being a hero. And that cost of being a hero is extremely evident in this final chapter of uh, the Hunger Games franchise, Mockingjay Part 2. And it's it's quite interesting because what we see is we really do see um, 
a lot more from Katniss's perspective, a lot more thinking. And kudos to cinematographer Joe Willems and, of course, to director Francis Lawrence, uh, who stepped in after the first one and really, that Gary Ross directed and really helped shape the visual tonal bandwidth of the franchise. But, you know, everybody has favorites in the franchise, not the least of which is Effie Trinket. We'll go to the next clip with Nina talking about the positive female portrayals. To me, that is part of the great privilege of producing these movies is that I have been given these incredible female characters. Mm -hmm. And then, again, like say my job was just to do right by them and not not screw it up. Um, And in the case of someone like Effie, once we realize how... What I love about Effie is how much she um, humanizes the capital in a way. It's very easy, obviously. You don't generally like the folks from the capital. And um, they're our enemy mm-hmm. in the stories, and they're the villain, and they're villainized. And yet, there's a. Her experience firsthand of, of getting to know Peta and Katniss and of. becoming acquainted with the humanity of the oppressed, Mm -hmm. basically, um, it brings a perspective to what it's like to be part of the ruling class in a way that would be very easy to be dismissive of. Mm -hmm. And so when we saw how much depth and soul and heart Effie brought to the telling of the stories, you know, we figured out a way to have her much more in mm-hmm. certainly the third, the first of the mm-hmm. two Mockingjays. Um, in the second one, her role is more specifically what it was mm-hmm. from the book. Uh, right. It kind of returns back to the book, whereas we digress mm-hmm. more from the book in the first one. Um, it's cut but, down on that fashion budget. Darn. I know, exactly. <laughs> it was so fun getting to do all those epi outfits. Um, and, uh, but... To, to, but so with those characters, they just yes, they're multi-dimensional characters. None of them are defined by their romantic lives. Not one of them is, you know, what each one of them faces is something that a person of any gender could face, mm-hmm. and yet each one of them faces it in sort of a uniquely feminine. Mm-hmm. Way, but with femininity being broadly defined, not narrowly right. defined, mm-hmm. and that's something to have gotten a chance to do that. If you're me and you care about those things as much as I do, and then to be given the characters and then the actors, I mean, like, doesn't really get much luckier than that. And something else that Nina was is very fortunate with and lucky with in this film is Jenna Malone's performance, who is an absolute standout, rapier wit, cutting edge, perfectly timed levity that really comes into play. So I can't wait for all of you to see it. This really is, it's an epic end to a cinematic legacy. And uh, the entire franchise has become part of cinema's history. Uh, but... For the last and final word on Mocking Jay and the Hunger Games, let's hear what Nina has to say about moving on and missing the franchise and Katniss. When you finally 
put everything down, the press is done, the movie's out, will you miss The Hunger Games and Katniss? Oh, my God, yes, of course. I mean, it's, it, to have, I mean, the, the sense of purpose, for one, and say, feeling like you've been entrusted with these books, and there's that, but then the shared experience of going through this with these incredibly passionate like, legions of fans, and to know that the thing that you're working on that you're obsessed with, that you love, is obsessed over and loved by people who truly love about it what you do and who are, and I think we have truly extraordinary fans who are so deeply connected to these characters and to this story, and um, to be able to have that experience of having this incredibly, really supportive fan base, you know, a lot of people have, like, haters, we don't, you know, we have this great, passionate, supportive fan base. That experience of sort of getting to go on this journey and do, getting to do it with them, like, of course, like, how could you not miss that? And this cast, who are so wonderful, um, you know, we'll always be friends. There'll never be another Hunger Games. It's a, it's one in, it's a, it's needle in a haystack. It's an extraordinary opportunity of a lifetime. And what a lifetime Nina's had. But we will hear more from Nina Jacobson in the coming months because she has some very exciting projects that she's spearheading, not the least of which is American Crime Story um, and the O.J. Simpson Trial of the Century story. Uh, and I've been following that uh, with the writers uh, since last year. So can't wait for that. And we'll be hearing a lot more on that uh, in 2016. But talking about powerful women, I have to I have to give a shout out here to my my TCM friend and pal, Ileana Douglas. Um, all you classic film fans, film fans out there, know Ileana not just from TCM and her second look chances uh, specials that she does, and for showing up at the festival and for, you know, going on the on the TCM cruises. But she is also an acclaimed author in her own right, besides being Melvin Douglas's granddaughter. Ileana has just written a book that is an absolute scream. It is I Blame Dennis Hopper and other stories from a life lived in and out of movies. I can't tell you enough how fabulous this book is. You will die. You will be enlightened on Hollywood history, but the humor, it, it will just, it just leaps off the page at you. We all know that Ileana is very funny, but to see this translated onto the printed page is fabulous. So please, do yourself a favor and get Ileana's book. You will love it, love it, love it. And I'm hoping that in the coming weeks, uh, she'll have some time to be with us here on Behind the Lens. And right now it looks like, okay, it looks like we may have Sumi Joe on the line. Brian's doing something with, with the phone. For those of you that, that aren't familiar, the way the system works is calls come into the sound into the sound booth. Brian answers them, and then I have to hit my magic button to connect them out here live on air. So we are oh, we're going to connect with the magic button. Is this Sumi Joe? Yay! Hi, hi, Sumi. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, Sumi, this is a real treat. I'm sorry I can't be at the press day in person with you today. Oh, okay. But I'm glad that we can do this. I have to say, I am a huge fan of your Ariatic work as it is. 
Oh, thank you very much. And it was a, a lovely surprise when I found out that you were a part of this beautiful film called Youth. And then for this climactic performance within the film, you, ju- you sent chills up and down my spine singing Simple Songs number three. Oh, <laughs> thank you very much. What is it, what made you, what attracted you to doing a song for the film? Well, uh, you know, I've been always a huge fan of Paolo Sorrentino, mm-hmm. and uh, like uh, one year and a half ago, um, he uh, phoned me to say that uh, he was preparing a very nice story that, uh, he, you know, he needed a very good soprano, <laughs> which he, somebody, you know, which he, he found a beautiful song that, uh, you know, I might be the right person to sing that song. So I said, well, it's going to be really interesting to sing a simple song because I thought it's a simple song, like a, you know, pop, you know, crossover song. <laughs> so I, I said, um, I, w- I said to myself, why he's asking me that kind of song? I, you know, because I'm an opera singer. So probably, you know, I, the question was a little bit for me, uh, you know, not very uh, interesting for the for the principal but afterwards when he uh showed me the score and also i heard david long the composer talk to me about the song and i said wow this song must be must be sung by me <laughs> no one else <laughs> so i immediately said yes paula i'm going to sing that song so that's what had happened i mean it is it is anything but a simple song it is it is exquisite what is it about david lang's music and lyrics that spoke to you when you first heard the song yeah he explained me uh, a little bit of what he felt about life in general also about the youth and uh, you know he wanted to make life simple because sometimes we musicians we live our lives quite you know difficult way a lots of trainings travels and uh, you are scared by you know performing on the stage and uh, you are sometimes far from your family your friends and sometimes life could be very uh, you know sad mm-hmm. and at the same time you know in the movie you know, somehow we musicians Sometimes you know think about how you 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 ended your career, you know. So uh, this song is talk about sort of for our ourselves, but especially he he thinks that this song is suitable for everybody who thinks he thinks that uh, youth is not only the matter of age, but youth is a matter of some the passion. If you have passion for everything, for, for, for music or food or for your job or your baby or your mm-hmm. animal or nature, it doesn't matter, but, you know, having a fashion for your life is uh, the really simple life. And this song is talk about that kind of stuff, you know, simple song, but uh, passionate life. So how was the filming process? Because that whole, that scene with the full orchestra there, uh, and with Michael Caine standing there as a conductor, mm-hmm. it's very impressive on screen. How was it for you? Because you're used to performing live. Right. The song was recorded in London Air Studio uh, several months ago. 
and obviously, uh, when I uh, when we filmed in London, uh, Wimbledon Theatre, it was uh, we spent two days there, and we repeated maybe I don't know fifty times the same scene. Oh. And we repeat it many, many times. But uh, in the end, uh, uh, how can I say, Paolo was quite uh, happy about uh, me, myself, also uh, the the way the Sir Michael Caine conducted uh, the, the orchestra. was the, the work was really concentrated. Everybody was there, you know, to... To, to create the, the beautiful atmosphere which, you know, Michael was giving. And, uh, well, but um, and on the screen, when I saw the movie, we, I could really feel that everybody was there for the, this finale, amazingly, you know, touching and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I must say that Paolo sometimes acts like a dictator. He wants everything... <laughs> Perfect, and he repeat until he wants the, the you know the scene that he wanted to have, but uh, you know he's mo- he's one one of the most incredibly kind and genuine and nice person I ever met. Well, I have to say that for fi- you know doing fifty takes, you put so much physical expressiveness into you know, your performance. Yeah, exactly. Every every you know cut we did and he used to you know Paolo used to come to say that Sumi, I need more power, more <laughs> passion. I need more, you know. <laughs> he kept saying that he need more. And so, you know, it was like after three takes I said, I felt myself really, oh my god, I need some ginseng here or kimchi <laughs> because I already after three takes I was just completely without energy. But uh, in the end thank God you know, I I was I survived there because of also you know a lot of joke and humor of uh, Mr. Michael Caine because he make everybody so you know laughing and he's such an adorable person. So thanks to him, I survived. Now, isn't he isn't he adorable? He I adore him. I love him so much. He is, and I'm glad I'm glad that you think that his performance as a conductor was. Very believable. It certainly appears when you're in the audience watching. <laughs> but you, as a professional, you would know. You would know better than us. Yeah, you know, there was there was a conductor, very young conductor, who was helping Mike Michael for many many months. You know, so you know, and so Michael was there in the in the in the, in the scene already. He he looked like a, a real conductor, and he acted like a real he acted like a real conductor. He he was not. I have nothing to say. I mean, when he was there <laughs> to give me the the attack and he give me the, all these dynamics, the musical dynamics, mm-hmm. I truly believed that he was the maestro. I mean, it was amazing. Oh wow! How much rehearsal time did you have, and were you involved at all in the orchestral arrangement for your voice? Right. Uh, David Lang, I know he worked really hard. He changed many times. And uh, uh, like, like a, one week ago, I also even got the piano score because, you know, I'm, I'm performing Simple Song in Italy also. Oh. And just uh, just before I flew to Los Angeles, I was invited to sing in Italian radio TV, uh, a very famous program that I, I sung 
a simple song with a piano. So, you know, for I think I, I imagine the for composer in, in, in there are you know a different way of in, express uh, her, you know their their music. And, uh, sometimes he tries with orchestra. Sometimes maybe just an ensemble or just a piano or even just a cappella. But in this case, I from from my my point of view, this simple song is. Uh, such a beautiful song, so you know, with a piano or with orchestra or even a cappella, it, it sounds mm-hmm. so so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. What is it? When did you start singing opera? When I was four years old. It's too early for you. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Wow! Yeah. yeah, very very young age. What, what is it about opera that? that you connect with what speaks to you about it telling you the truth i never loved opera that's the i'm so sorry to disappoint you <laughs> but opera for me you know i always thought that uh, it's not for me my, because my mother was obsessed with uh, Maria Callas, and, you know, as soon as she get up in the morning, first thing she did was just, you know, listen to Maria Callas' voice, <laughs> listen, you know, the, the Tosca, Eturandot, Butterfly, all those mm-hmm. operas. And so for me, I, I'm, I'm sick and tired of all these operas. <laughs> in the morning until the midnight, you know, every day. So I said to myself, oh, no, I hate that music, you know. And then when I was four, my mother, uh, you know, said, you need to learn how to play the piano. And so at four years of age, I started to play the piano, you know, and then, you know, every day, eight hours a day. And uh, she used to close the door if I don't finish eight hours of exercise. So how can I appreciate <laughs> classical music for a young, young girl? Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard understand but at the same time i understood that to be a professional musician which my mother wanted me to become and uh, i said yeah it, it needs a lot of sacrifice a lot of hours of you know solitude you know mm-hmm. loneliness and i as i was a very young age but i i start to understand that my life going to be in this way you know practicing you traveling studying alone and fighting with yourself and that's the so but but now i must say that i appreciate <laughs> opera i encourage young people and everybody to go to the opera because you know opera and classical music you know you can find a real deep how do you say you purify yourself i can mm-hmm. say you purify yourself yes it's such beautiful music it is. It's it's exquisite. Do you have a favorite opera either to listen to or that you have sung? You know, it's a very difficult question, but I try to answer. Um, my favorite composer is Puccini, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I love Puccini. It's opera. And, uh, but I cannot, uh, um, you know, don't like uh, how can I say the also uh, you know French music mm-hmm. like uh, Du Parc, DBC, you know, and even even more than like uh, you know also the German music like uh, Mahler I love it and also Wagner. There are so many great musicians and uh, composers and uh, I just uh, I love I love them all. And I'm sure that David Lang and Simple Songs is now on your hit parade. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite, favorite songs. Will this become part of your repertoire now, the simple songs? Yeah, it's becoming because, uh, you know, I somehow adapted that song to my vocal range because the song is quite, uh, it's, a, it's called simple song, but not simple. it's not simple at all how to mm-hmm. sing because there are two parts. First part is really lyric, the you know, soprano voice and very nice. But uh, the second part, you suddenly becomes like a coloratura, you know, sounds because mm-hmm. it's very technically it's, it's quite uh, hard because it's uh, you have to keep the long notes without taking any breath, and uh, you should be really rhythmical with the, the violin solos, and so it's quite uh, um, difficult to 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 go with with a with a orchestra so it's a simple song but very complicated song well one thing that is not complicated is your talent you are you are a breath of fresh air and it is such a joy for you to join me today sumi oh thank you so much i can't thank you enough and everybody and there is a soundtrack i understand for the film that the simple songs is on yes 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 it is everybody needs to go buy it now Yes, please. Sumi, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was the incomparable uh, South Korean operatic soprano, uh, Sumi Jo. Uh, She's a Grammy winner. She's performed all over the world. And uh, Youth will be out, I believe, uh, this Friday or next with Michael Caine, Harvey Keitel, Jane Fonda in what has to be pushed for a Best Supporting Actress performance and Rachel Weisz. Uh, amazing film. It is not for everybody. I will say that. Um, but there's a lot of metaphor visually and within the context of the story. The performances are passion personified and it is capped off with the, a beautiful, beautiful climactic finale uh, with Sumi Joe. So we're going to take a short break while we wait for our Rick Alverson to call, and we'll be right back. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part by the Culver City Observer. Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And we're back behind the lens. If you were listening earlier, you heard the incomparable uh, operatic uh, soprano Sumi Joe uh, with us. Uh, huge, huge thanks to Fox Searchlight and Chelsea Cruz for making that uh, special one-on-one uh, for us happen. We're still waiting for Rick Galverson, but in the meantime, we're going to move on to The Good Dinosaur. Uh, teased you a few weeks ago uh, with production designer Harley Jessup, and uh, we're going to move on and tease you a little bit more with cinematographer and lighting specialist Sharon Callahan. Some of you may know Sharon Callahan for her landscape work uh, on the Wyoming-Idaho Snake River uh, region. She is a master of painting light. Um, That is the best way to describe what Sharon does, and when the Good Dinosaur, which I'm under embargo and I can't, I can't review it for you, but I can give you all the background on the film. 
until it opens on Thanksgiving Day. Um, but Sharon, the entire look of this film is because of Sharon Callahan. It, the look is based on her paintings, on her use of light. And, you know, when you're putting together a film, typically John Lasseter, or in this case Pete Son, the director, they're going to have an, a visual idea. But here, their visual idea came from Sharon. So I sat down with her at Pixar uh, in October and talked to her about getting involved with The Good Dinosaur and how her work influenced the entire look of the film. How early did you get involved and know that your own work would be such an influence for the palette and the look well, of was, Good Dinosaur? It was pretty early on because, um, you know, Pete knew he was going to make an outdoor movie and, um, you know, he knew that my favorite thing was to go out and paint landscapes in my spare time. So it was something that kind of was a good fit for the movie early on. Mm -hmm. um, and it was something, you know, immediately, I, of course, I fell in love with wanting to do. And, and um, I just kept putting um, ideas in front of him. And it just kind of kept growing <laughs> from there. You know, I had a, a big box full of um, lighting painting studies that I had done from locations. Um, at home from the area and I just would bring them in and kind of let him sift through them and just to see what kind of, what things he liked and you know, how to spark a dialogue of, of what the film could look like. So the influence was, you know, there from the beginning. And the influence, the visual influence of the film and with Sharon's work and actually the beauty of that, that region of the United States so much of it boils down to what Sharon calls painterly realism. Uh, I have to tell you, when I at the first clips that I saw up at Pixar, at first I thought it was a live-action film with then CGI dinosaurs essentially matted, superimposed on top of on top of the realistic back backdrops. But that is not at all what happened. Um, Technology has been pushed, as comes as no surprise with Pixar. And so much of that involves the light and Sharon's method of painterly realism with light. So we talked about light. The light here, your use of light is so, it really is exquisite. Never more so than the nighttime firefly scene and your use of light through fog, clouds, because I know that's very tricky to light that. And especially since you're now doing the 360 with everything. What kind of challenges did that present for you to find that emotional tone through the light and have the lighting work in this world that's been created? Wow, that's a good good question. A complex answer, I think, because it's a complex question. You might have to break it down into smaller <laughs> chunks for me. Because um, I could go anywhere with the answer on that one. Um, you can go anywhere with it. Well, I think a lot of it was developing some new techniques for, you know, not only how we did the clouds, but any kind of cloud-like element, you know, vapor and steam and, and mist and that sort of thing that, because they've always been challenging for us to light well and to look 
believable and to not break the bank as far as rendering um, throughput because that kind of stuff tends to be a bit render heavy. Um, and Magnus Renningay, I think that's how you pronounce his name, was the main architect behind um, developing this new volumetric um, technology that we could, and, and we worked together closely on it because I, I really needed something that I could light well and light better than we have in the past and that the colors, the, the volumes would absorb the color mm -hmm. of the light and the light color could penetrate into them in a way that we hadn't been able to do before and you know that these things could cast shadows easily on the ground and really become part of how we light the world instead of being the separate painted element that was added in later. Um, so, you know, and I'm constantly thinking about, you know, the light phenomenon and how that works with it. Um, you know, how can I get, you know, just little details in of like with the steam in the um, area where there's the scene where there's the um, terraced hot pools, you know, that you, like you see in Yellowstone with the mist rising out of it, of how to get things like, you know, a sundog effect coming through that mist with just a little hint of a rainbow. Um, you know, I, I don't know, I just have fun with, I'm doing a horrible job answering You're doing that a question. beautiful job. <laughs> doing a beautiful job. I used to get lost, you know, basically. It's like I just, I, it's like I go down a rabbit hole in that because I've spent so much time trying to understand how light works in a natural world and how to capture that in a painting. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just took, translated a lot of that experience and knowledge into doing it for the film. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, th Sharon, one thing about Sharon is, she is so humble, uh, and she has such a grace about her, and she doesn't. She really doesn't think that what she does is that special, but her work is so beautiful. If you get a chance to see any of her paintings, see them. Definitely on the 25th of November, see The Good Dinosaur. But with all the light and the beauty that she brings, I had to go there. I had to ask her, did she have a favorite scene in the film? Is there a scene that you are most, that you love the most with the lighting? There's a lot of them. It would be so hard to choose because each one of them evokes something different in me that I love. Like some of them I love because of the emotion I felt like, like I was able to draw out of that. Some of it's because I just like the way the light's sparkling on the water or, um, you know, the intense color or... Um, you know, how it, it, it feels very specific to a time of day or a season mm -hmm. or, um, so there's, or some of them just because they make me homesick, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I think there's a lot of them I love for very different reasons. In fact, I love them all, but all in different ways. Mm -hmm. It's like having 20 children, you know? <laughs> and luckily for us, she doesn't have 20 children, but she's got about 200 paintbrushes. But, you know, along with the, when you see the good dinosaur, it is not just light, it's weather and water. There's a lot of interaction of light and water. And we've all seen how the sun sparkles on the ocean, how, for those of you that go to the rivers or to the, up to the mountains, to lakes, how the, the light sparkles and shines on the fish or the rocks or the plant life underneath the surface of the water. So that was something else that Sharon was responsible for creating with the look. 
the look of light and water. It's very challenging, and I think that that's, you know, I've, it's something that I've tried to paint a lot. So I've studied and looked very closely into how those colors change based on how deep the water is. And, um, but I think this is a, a good example of how, you know, I was trying for something that isn't photoreal. You know, it doesn't, those sparkles look different than what a camera would capture, but they, they have a truth to them that feels real, but they're a, it's an enhanced reality. It's something that you wish they always look like. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping that, you know, it, it kind of elevates into something that it's like, wow, that looks so, I don't know. I mean, how you described it is what I was trying to get out of I it. Mean, so it, it's, it looked, it's very gratifying to know that it, it came so through. It looks so real, but then the sparkle of light dancing on the water, that's what took it up to the next level. And that's what you feel when you see it, but nobody ever captures that on camera. Because it's very difficult to capture that on camera. And it just, I, I fell in love with that moment in, in, in what we saw. And I guess that's what I was really trying to do is capture emotion rather than capture reality. Mm -hmm. You know, capture that how you feel when you look at something rather than the literal reality mm -hmm. of it. But yeah, hand in hand with all of that is color. And as I we touched upon a couple weeks ago uh, with Harley Jessup, the production designer, the, the use of color is really exquisitely done in The Good Dinosaur. Uh, because to refresh your memory, it is essentially a reverse story of a boy and his dog with uh, the dinosaur Arlo essentially would be the boy character and his dog is a little human named spot because the whole premise is what if the asteroid never hit the earth man obviously would not be as advanced and dinosaurs would be ruling the world um and arlo is a fun dinosaur to have ruling the world by the way but you take a look at on screen and you have arlo in his beautiful greens and spot's eyes have those same flecks of green you but you look in Arlo's eyes and he has flecks of gold and peach like a spot skin tone color so it's very beautifully done so color is essentially everything and this is what Sharon had to say about color well I think for you know each scene you know I tried to find kind of what the signature things would be for that scene mm -hmm. so that you know the movie doesn't all end up feeling the same but you know I also have to find what the common threads are going to be too that kind of mm -hmm ties it all together and anchors it. Um, and it's fun when you've got characters that have strong bits of color like that because you want to showcase them and, and show them off in a nice way and balance them with each other and then kind of, you know, maybe tone down the, the world around it enough to help those kind of pop and come mm -hmm. through. And the, the character colors were a lot of fun on this film to kind of play with and... Um, because a lot of it's based in reality, some of it's pretty fanciful, mm -hmm. you know, and how to get that to fit well with the a more natural palette of the world. Um, and so it was kind of delivered that the deliberate that the characters weren't a purely natural palette because it makes it a little easier for them to feel like little jewels or special things mm -hmm. in the scene. So, and now we're gonna move from the good dinosaur to the world of entertainment and Rick Alverson. Rick, are you there? 
Hello, hello. Sorry I'm late. Oh, well, maybe I'll forgive you. I'll... I wouldn't if I were you. Well, I don't think Neil Hamburger would forgive you. I don't know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> so, talk to me. Entertainment. Where did this film come from? Uh, well, I think, uh, I mean, I, I have some interest in Greg Turkington, the, the, the lead, has some interest, and they sort of coincided. Um, I think one of those is in a kind of uh, discomfort, and, and uh, it's, it's sort of constructive attributes. Um, so, yeah, me and Greg worked together on the comedy my last movie, so that was also part of the genesis. Mm-hmm. Something that I find really interesting with the structure of entertainment is that there is no resolution, there's no great epiphany happening for the lead character, for any characters, really. And that's something that we're not used to. So it kind of makes you squirm a little bit when you're watching it. And I think also for, within the, the context of the film itself, the audience members watching the comedian are also yeah. a little uncomfortable. And that's beautiful the way that translates through the movie screen into us sitting in the seats. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, restlessness is something that that that, that promotes, like, active viewership, essentially, you know. I mean, the intellect darts around inside the head and, and uh, looks, you know, actually engages in a kind of critical discourse with the thing. And, and then the body's animated, and, and, and it's, uh, it becomes an experience rather than just, you know, uh, uh, a literary sort of redirection to, you know, old thoughts and old ideas and, and uh, you know, uh, those compact, really efficient, functional ways of reading, reading cinema, that narcotic safety of something, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, yeah. Now, you take, we essentially, we go on a road trip with Greg's character uh, through the American Southwest. How did you pick that locale? I mean, it opens it wide up for these stops at these little no-tell motels and watching nothing but Spanish-language TV. Uh, so that adds this really great subtext of humor in and of itself. What What does... It's setting it on the road trip aspect, going, you know, to the little comedy clubs, the little no-tell motels along the way on the route to finding his uh, daughter. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, not much of it's really humorous for me, but uh, um, it's just, it's, you know, I mean, there's, it's, it's, there's, a, there's, there's a, a plateau and a tragedy to the whole thing. But, uh, I mean, as far as it being in the desert, uh you know, it sort of had to be. I mean, uh, again, we we have access to ideas in cinema and media through through cliches and tropes and things and symbolism, things that we've been sort of uh, reared on. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's a, it's a language and a grammar, and uh, uh, I think uh, so. The, the the desert is a place of of, of spiritual conquest and renewal and. It's something that goes back forever, and particularly in American cinema, the idea of the American West as, as something of unlimited potential that is, uh, is, is, you know, obviously not the case because we've hit our limits uh, over and over again. We just refuse to recognize them, which is part of our, our problem, I think. 
Mm-hmm. Now, your cast is amazing. You've got, you know, Michael Sarah, John C. Riley, Dean Stockwell, and one of my young favorites, Ty Sheridan. Uh, not, yeah. to, not to mention Amy Simons. How did you line up this cast, Rick? Um, well, uh, I think John and Michael saw my last movie, The Comedy, and, uh, you know, they, they, um, they appreciated it. And so I, I told them they had to, had to be involved in this and they great, uh, graciously <laughs> con, uh, conceded. And, uh, I think that, uh, you know, in, we reached out to Dean Stockwell because there's, you know, there's something about, I mean, the wandering cinema of the '70s that is that is that that he's a, a bit of an icon of, you know. And uh, I, I thought it was interesting. I like the idea of, uh, especially in a movie as challenging as entertainment can be for an audience, and 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 and, and it's engineered to sort of be so, and in a. In a, in a in a in a in a way, um, I think being pulled out of the experience is part of the dynamic of, of it. Um, it's just then, like you know, uh, being pulled back in. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that the idea that we, we become aware that we're watching a movie and we become skeptical of it, and then but then we 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 sort of uh, renegotiate the terms of the thing and are pulled back in out of curiosity is a really interesting uh, event. So, um, and Amy is, you know, I've known her for, 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 uh, several years and, and she's an amazing, you know, actor and director in her own right. And, uh, uh, so it, she, we were really happy to have her and, uh, um, you know, I, these, these things, there's a, you sent a lot of emails. Is the short answer. <laughs> now, wearing you've got all you're wearing all the hats here. You've got writer, director, producer, and editor. When you're writing something like entertainment, are you also is your director's hat also stepping in there? And you're thinking of what your visual could be, how you can translate this to screen. And then while you're directing it, is the editor voice in your head looking at what you're shooting, what you're framing to see what you need and what you don't need to do yes yeah i mean and 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 when you're cutting you're you're writing you know so uh um i I, you know i that's that's sort of my responsibility is it's kind of like the tonal vision of the thing and thinking uh, kind of understanding how everything you know gels and and becomes cohesive in something that is uh uh you know a, a compact experience um and so, yeah, it's, you know, there, there's a, a lot of bleed, particularly independent film, um, and there's a lot of responsibility uh, that, you know, obviously falls on the director to to wrestle something out of, uh, of, of this. And there's also a lot of generous and gracious trust uh, from, uh, you know, the financiers and the producers and, uh, that, 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 you know, let us independent filmmakers do what we what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned you know, the financiers, which it's difficult enough in indie film, but a film like yours, this is not really even a mainstream, you know, it's not an indie rom-com, it's not an indie horror film. Is it more difficult to get financing for a film like Entertainment? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean... You know, we 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 uh, we've sort of engineered a culture where we where you know America's sort of unique in this in this in this way. And a lot of the rest of the world, you know, art cinema is is, is cinema, and it's supported by by the government uh, from the the 
the, 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 the you know, uh, financing through to the distribution as a steward of something, re- recognizing that the free market sort of degrades these things naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the U.S., that, that, that's at work. I mean, it's, we're increasingly engineered and, 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 you know, nurtured into wanting, you know, particularly cinema as a, and, and, and episodic television and a lot of things as like a narcotic device that mm-hmm. doesn't stimulate us, you know. So much so that you would think of that 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 there's like two kinds of movies, you know, one that that is that is active and stimulating, and another that is passive and anesthetizing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the, the the latter is 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 the the bread and butter of the industry. Um, but you know, my my question is, what does that do to to culture? You know, what does that do to politics? What does that do to the the, the physiology of people who are vulnerable in these? dark theaters in their in their rooms sort of you know essentially like learning to be passive and mm-hmm. to learning to to be uh uh yeah so no i mean that's one of the things i like about your work uh is that it makes you think you can't go and watch a rick alverson film and sit in the theater, and it's like the Avengers. And it's like, okay, yeah, or oh, I can take a nap. I can close my eyes. You really have to watch your film, and it may and think about it. Uh, well, I appreciate that. You know, it, it's your films are not something to just gloss over. They do, they make you think. You know, after after you leave the theater, after you turn off the computer screen. They make you think, and I think that's a testament to you as a filmmaker. Thank you. I mean, you know, this idea of of active viewers is something I think that is is there needs to be. You know, there's 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 a lot of you know a, a lot of people, but in a, in a in a quiet corner of the of the market that try to 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 you know engineer active viewing experiences, and uh, um, it's. It's uh, it's difficult here, mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know I mean we need we need counterweights um, even if they're not you know uh, consumer candy. Mm-hmm. So. Now, are you working on another project right now, or just working on getting entertainment out there to the masses? Uh, I'm in LA promoting this for a week because we open in in Los Angeles at Cine Family on Friday uh, the twentieth, um, and I just came from New York and we did a week there and. Uh, so um, right now, I'm just promoting this, and I have I'm developing several several other things that I've been working on for a while. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I'm just trying to to to, to clear this and, and hoping that, that that you know people people come out and uh, and, uh, and and watch. Because of course, if they come and they watch this one, it will help you get another one made. Yes. <laughs> yes. Rick, thank you so much. Right. Well, a, I appreciate it. Thanks. It's been Sorry a, I was late. It's been oh no problem. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was Rick Alverson talking about his film Entertainment, which opens in limited release at the Cine Family in Los Angeles on Friday. So we just have a couple minutes left, and we have time enough that you can hear a last clip of my interview with Sharon Callahan on The Good Dinosaur talking about the greatest gift. I say uh, a unique perspective on the world. You know, it's, um, 
I spend a lot of time observing things, which can be kind of exhausting because I can't shut it off. Um, so when I go on vacation, you know, I get worn out really easily if I'm in a new place because I'm just, you know, absorbing information, visual information, and trying to store it all. Um, but also, you know, if I'm on vacation, I can't go for more than a week without making images or I start going crazy because it's, it's just how I'm wired up. I love making pictures. I love making images. And it's what makes me happy in life. It feels like it's what I feel like I was meant to do. And at 11.59, what we're meant to do is say goodbye. Until next week, I'm Debbie Lynn Elias, Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.